And as you are, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. A great parallel feedback. I'm not going to adjust my microphone. Okay. Matthew chapter 27, we are nearing our three-year-ish journey through Matthew. We only have a little more than a chapter left, but there's a lot in it. So here we are in Matthew chapter 27. Um, Just a reminder that for our youngest of worshipers, we do have red folders right in the back. um, If you would like one of those. Matthew chapter 27, here now. God's word for his people. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. That would have been about 150 to 600 people. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed from his hand, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, And saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks indeed. Uh, My favorite kind of leader, uh, and I think it would be yours as well, is the one who, who gets his hands dirty, right? The general who joins the fight, the the coach who who plays and runs around with his team. Since Rob is is doing so much C.S. Lewis lately, I had to do the other Christian author that you're supposed to quote, uh, Tolkien. Um, So in Tolkien's uh, The Hobbit, um, we uh, we have these characters, the dwarves, and they're led by Thorin, Thorin Oakenshield. You have to say his name that way. Uh, he, he's, he's this kind of leader. He's the one always first into battle, never, never struggling to get his hands or his sword dirty. He has his poor moments, but near the end, we see kind of the climax of his, of his character development. 
Near the end of the story, he's trapped in this mountain filled with gold and, and the curse that gold brings, which is greed and desire for more gold. So he's reluctant to join the battle that he sees between the forces of evil and the forces of good, which include his fellow dwarves. He's reluctant. He won't even let his fellow dwarves join in. But near the end, he finally comes down from the battle, from his castle, and joins the battle. But it's not an entirely happy story. Because one of the downsides of getting your hands dirty is that sometimes you get hurt. Sometimes your hands get really dirty. Now, scholars of The Hobbit, and yes, they do exist, uh, scholars of The Hobbit, many of them say that Thorin had to get hurt. He had to get injured because it was his injury that spurred his, his fellow dwarves to fight harder towards victory. And so my question to you is this, about the one we follow, about our leader. Was his suffering necessary? Is the suffering of Jesus simply a motivational tool that we use to get us through our suffering? Or is it essential to the very core of the gospel? This morning we're going to address the question, why did Jesus have to suffer? And we're going to see that Jesus had to suffer to save us. He suffered to sympathize with us. And he suffered to strengthen us. He suffered to save us. He suffered to sympathize with us. And he suffered to strengthen us. Um, I've heard sermons on this text, I'm sure you have as well, that focus on the gory details of the crucifixion with the goal of getting us to, to realize the nature of our sin, really pile on the guilt. Um, I don't know if you ever saw Mel Gibson's The Passion, but I saw it, and I don't remember much other than I was weeping by the end of it. I was a hot mess, and I, I couldn't get out of my room for a few days. Now, it's not inappropriate. It is not inappropriate to meditate or even dwell on our sin for a time, on our guilt. It is not inappropriate to consider the, the gruesome experience that Jesus had to endure on our behalf. But the question for us is, was that Matthew's intent? If so, he does a really bad job of highlighting it. Because all the details we get about the crucifixion itself are right here in these two verses. Having scourged him, cat of nine tails, and then in verse 35, and when they had crucified him, that's it. We don't get details about how exactly he was crucified. We don't get details about how long he was up there. We don't get many, many details. All we get is that they did crucify him. The rest of the, pack, the passage focuses on the suffering leading up to the crucifixion. And I ask you, what does that do for us? Why did Jesus need to suffer? Well, Matthew takes great pains to make it painfully obvious what his point in all these verses is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a step further and make it even more obvious. Okay, Matthew, let's start. We have three verses. Let's start in order. Matthew, verse 35. We see that after the Roman soldiers crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now, if you're, keep it up there for a second. 
if you're uh, an Israelite and you've grown up hearing the Old Testament and especially singing the Psalms in the temple, that would have tickled your ear. They divided his garments by casting lots. That sounds a lot like they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22, the psalm about David writing about his enemies. Okay, well maybe just once is a coincidence. How about twice? In verse 39, we see that those who passed by Jesus derided him, wagging their heads. That sounds an awful lot like Psalm 22, verse 7, the same psalm. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads in shame and disappointment. Is two enough? How about three? Uh, In verse 43, last one, the leaders mock Jesus. He trusts in God, so let God deliver him now if he desires him. That is eerily similar to he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Three times, Matthew uses language that is nearly identical to what we would have heard in the Psalms. But not just any psalm, a psalm written by David explaining his experience. But the, but the Israelite people knew him by a different name. Not just David, but King David. And so Matthew's point in highlighting the fact that Jesus suffered in the same way that King David suffered is to highlight the fact that this is the king. This is the promised Messiah, the king like David who would rule forever. He is your hope. He is the one who is here to save you. What does all this mean? Well, if we read if we read this narrative and our first and primary concern is our guilt, we might be reading it wrong, right? As, as, we, as we look at the sacrifice that Jesus made for his people, and our first and primary reaction is to wallow and dwell in the guilt that made us necessary, we might be reading it wrong. One, one example of this I see is in the latest uh, big Avenger movie where we have two characters. You don't have to have seen the movie for this to make sense. Uh, There are two main characters. And in order to continue on, in order to defeat the bad guy, they need this one essential element. And the only way they can get it is by one of them dying, one of them giving up their lives. Well, these are two best friends. So rather than each one of them pushing the other to die, they're actually doing the opposite. They're fighting, they're launching ropes, they're hitting each other, trying to make the other one stay so that they can sacrifice themselves. Well, finally, it's a girl and a boy, Natasha and Clint. Natasha gives up her life. Now, it's appropriate to be sad. It's appropriate even to feel a little bit of guilt. But what we see in the subsequent minutes of the film is this dread. It's this wallowing over the fact of how unworthy Clint is to have received the sacrifice. He can't even move on. He can't go on with his life because it should have been him. Again, there's a hint of appropriateness there, but we're missing the point. Clint was missing the point. His friend loved him so much that she gave up his, her life for him and all of her friends. 
we likewise are missing the point. Right? We, we can take our sin and even inject it into Scripture. We can take what is a good thing, feeling guilt, and make it into pride. Oh, it should have been me. I'm not worthy. Instead of highlighting the, what we should be highlighting, the goodness and the love of our Savior towards His people. Christian, He suffered to save you. That is the good news of the Gospel. Because if we wallow in our sin, as we just sang, in thy mercy, my God, sin would reduce us, as you're about to see on the slides, sin would reduce us to utter despair. But it is through the free goodness of God that our spirits are revived. And as we remember that he that first made me still keeps me alive. Matthew's goal is not to plunge you into a state of, of guilt over your sin. Matthew's goal is to show you what has been done for your guilt. Jesus had to suffer. Because otherwise that would be your suffering. Jesus was mocked and beaten, stricken, smitten, and afflicted because otherwise that's what you would have to do to atone for your sins. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, but Scripture also tells us that He suffered for our sins. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, we read that Jesus also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So this isn't another inspirational story. This is the proclamation of the good news. That you have a Savior, and that Savior suffered and died for you so that you would not have to for your sins. The suffering that your sins deserve is not on you anymore. Your guilt is not yours to carry. Amen? That is the good news of the Gospel. But He is not a Savior from afar. Like Thorin who came down from his castle, Jesus comes down, takes on flesh to save us. And so, yes, he is the sufferer who saves us, but he is also the sufferer who is able to sympathize with us. In fact, he suffered in order to sympathize with us. That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 4. This passage is one that we've, we've mentioned here often as an assurance of pardon and other things. This is the truth that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us and our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. We'll touch that every respect in just a moment. But consider what Jesus went through in our passage this morning, in verses 29 and 30. The rulers, they twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and they spit on him. And they took the very reed that was in his hand and they beat him over the head with it. The, 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 the gist of the verb there is not one. It's not like, okay, bonk, we're over. It, it's, this, it's this repeated beating over the head. Jesus continually suffered physical abuse. Yes, to save you, to suffer on your behalf, but also to sympathize with you. So that all who have ever faced any sort of physical abuse at the hands of those who should have protected and cared for them and loved them, and instead were faced with the results of sin so that they would know that they have a Savior who knows what they're going through. Verse 44, He was mocked by the soldiers, the religious leaders, the Jewish and the Gentile people, and even the robbers, even the criminals who were crucified with Him, also reviled Him in the same way. 
if you face verbal abuse, if you've grown up in a home, in a marriage, where, where words are like knives, they are like weapons used against you. Jesus tells you, not just they're there, I died for your sins. Jesus says, I came to earth. I have experienced that at a grand scale. I know what you are going through. We could go on and on about all the suffering faced during Jesus' time on earth, but the question before is, is what does that do for you, Christian? What does that enable you to do? Have you ever been in a situation, I, I hope you haven't, but I would guess that you have, uh, where someone tries to relate to you and they just, they don't get it. You know what I mean? Um, so, for instance, you might be having a tough time at work and someone kind of just asks you, hey, how are things going? And you don't, you don't have time to get into all the details. It's not appropriate. But you kind of just, you give them a little gist, a little, little morsel, and you say, things are going pretty tough at work. By which you mean, I might be fired and my business might go bankrupt. And they respond with, oh, I totally know what you're talking about. Our boss just took away jeans on Friday. Like, the struggle is real, you know? And you're just sitting there like, no, you well-meaning friend, you. It's awkward, right? It, it's painful. It's the opposite of helpful. Is that what we have that's not what we want, right? I mean, that's not what we have with Jesus. We have a Savior. We have one who came down and knows what it means to be human. We have a Savior who, who wore clothes and had to learn languages. And he had to learn how to read. And he had to be mocked. And he had to learn how to interact in social gatherings. And he went through puberty. And he had to go to the bathroom. These are all the things that Jesus Christ, God made man, had to go through. He knows what we're going through. This is not foreign to him. But herein lies the struggle. I told you we would go back to Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, we, we already read that in every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are, right? Well, if, if you've ever thought about that verse, maybe you, you come away with conclusions like me. Well, Jesus never had a computer. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to have instant access to things that we shouldn't be looking at or instant access to be able to buy something with the click of a button. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to argue with your, with your spouse. He was never married. Jesus doesn't know the struggles I have with my kids. He never had children. Jesus doesn't know what it's like uh, to be a woman because he was a man. So, is the author of Hebrews wrong? Or more likely, are we misunderstanding what the author of Hebrews was saying? What, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that no, Jesus never argued with his wife about the best way to load a dishwasher or about much more serious things. He never did that. However, what's at the heart of those struggles? What's at the heart of being disrespected, of, of feeling maligned. What, what's at the heart of that is a human desire to be loved, a human desire to be needed, to be respected. Jesus went through that, and he suffered. 
on your behalf? What's at the desire of all of, all of our arguments, all of our struggles? At the, at the root of at least many of them, if not all of them, is a desire to have our will be done. Jesus went through that. Jesus asked God, is there any other way? Is there any other way in the garden that I can redeem my people? If there is, please show me. And yet, the author of Hebrews tells us he went through all these struggles without sin. In the garden, we are told, he expressed all those things and yet said, responded in a way that we are unable to respond on our own. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Whatever your struggle is, Christian, be comforted by the fact that the sufferer who saves you is also the sufferer who is able to sympathize with you. To all who have been abused, to all who are currently being abused, to all who have been forgotten, maligned, made fun of, insulted, mocked, Jesus is your Savior. Jesus is not the Savior of those who have it all together. The righteous have no need for a Savior. Those who are well have no need of a physician. This is your Savior, the one who suffered. And he says to you and to me, with his actions, I know what you're going through. But even maybe more clearly, he says with his words in Matthew 11, come to me. That's the Savior we have, the one who says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. At the end, that is what we desire. We desire rest. I want the suffering to be over. The author of Hebrews communicates the same thing. We already read verse 15 where we are told that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses, which includes our temptations and our sufferings. The author of Hebrews continues in the very next verse by telling us what we should do as a result of that. Let us then, as a result of that, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is not the father who says to his children, rub some dirt on it and suck it up. Jesus is not the coach who says, you're giving me 100%, give me 110%. Jesus is not the military general who just yells at his people and demands more and more and more and more. Jesus is the gentle and lowly suffering Savior who says, come to me and you will find mercy, you will find grace, and you will find rest. Amen, Christian. That that is your Savior. That is the grace that is offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you can believe it, the gospel is even greater than that. Because as we continue reading in Scripture, we see that yes, Jesus suffered to save us. He suffered to be able to sympathize with us and comfort us. But He also suffered He also suffered to strengthen us. What do you, what do you think it did for the soldiers in The Hobbit? When they saw Thorin Oakenshield, the king of the dwarves, the king on the mountain, coming down, taking up his sword, and fighting alongside them. It gave them strength, right? It gave them courage. 
It gave them new zeal to do what they needed to do. But what Jesus did is way more than just join the fight. We can't, we can't stop at this passage in Matthew because even Matthew doesn't stop here, right? Matthew has 28 chapters, not 27. And if when we keep on reading in the next several weeks, you will see Jesus die, but you will also see Jesus raised from the dead. You will see Jesus with resurrected power, all authority in heaven and on earth. As you keep reading in Acts, you will see the ascended and exalted Savior. That is our Savior. And we can't address those in great detail because that's not the scope of our passage. But we have to. You have to read this passage of Jesus' suffering in light of those. And what we read, what we come away with, is that Jesus suffered in order to strengthen us. For example, for example, Philippians chapter 2. A well-known passage we've gone through many, many times here in this church. And we read that though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in this human form, he suffered. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. He allowed himself to be mocked and spit at and dressed up like a crazy man, beaten over the head repeatedly, abandoned, starved, abused. And as a result of this, as a result of dying on the cross and suffering, what happened? Paul is very clear. He uses a word that can only mean one thing. Verse 9, therefore, it's supposed to be up on the screen. It was supposed to be like this big. Yeah. Therefore, ah, therefore God has highly exalted him. Please hear that. It's not that Jesus suffered and then he received some exaltation later. No, he suffered, he died. And as a result of that, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. It is a result of his suffering. So Christian, how does that change the way you view your suffering? When we admire someone, uh, an athlete, an entrepreneur, uh, an artist, we, we don't always remember what came before the exaltation, right? We look at an athlete who's won many championships, has had great success, and we think, oh man, they're awesome. What we don't realize is how many countless hours they spent in the gym or in the video room studying film. We don't, we don't always recognize the suffering that preceded the lowercase exaltation. The question before us today is, Jesus suffered and then he was exalted, capital E. We are told that we will suffer and be exalted, lowercase e. What relationship do those two have? I think Paul makes it abundantly clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where we read that what is waiting for those united for, to Christ is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what's waiting for us. How do we get there? Paul says in the previous verses, right? You saw the dot, dot, dot right before? Okay, here's what comes right before. Literally one verse. 
Paul encourages the church at Corinth, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is waiting away, wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And it's not working. Okay. Uh, for, he says, for this light momentary affliction is doing what? Preparing us. This light momentary affliction, the sufferings that we face in this world are actually preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Don't think of your, uh, don't think of your eternal weight of glory as like the ice cream that many parents promise their kids, right? Kids, clean your room and then you will get, we'll go for ice cream. What connection does ice cream have with cleaning your room? Zero. Zero. Ice cream has nothing to do with cleaning your room. We have to think of the eternal weight of glory more, more like muscles. How do you get muscles? Not the things you eat, the, like the things I'm supposed to have. Muscles, right? How do you get muscles? You go to the gym. You eat right. You get some sleep. And as a result of that, what do those things prepare you for? Being stronger. Leaner, having more endurance, being able to do more things. We have to think of our sufferings in that way. And so Christians, out of all, all the religions in the entire world, we have the exclusive privilege of being able to do two things at once. We are commanded and enabled to mourn, to lament, to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. And... We are enabled to do what James says in James chapter 1. That even the greatest of our sufferings, we are able to count as joy. Why? Why? Because if we just stick it out and, and endure, we're going to get to heaven? That's not actually what he says. Because this, this trial that you're going through right now is actually producing steadfastness. It's producing the endurance that will prepare you for the eternal weight of glory. So I ask you, Christian, as we wrap up, I ask you, as you hear that Jesus Christ suffered to save you, what does that do for you? My, my hope is that you hear the good news that your guilt is not yours to carry or deal with because Jesus Christ suffered to cancel your guilt. As you hear that Jesus suffered to sympathize, I pray that you hear what kind of Savior you have, one who is gentle and lowly in heart, one who sympathizes with even the, the greatest sins in the world. As you hear that Jesus' suffering strengthens us, I pray that you would be strengthened because you are united to Christ. And as Jesus suffered and was later exalted, so we have to suffer. But we have the guarantee that we will also be exalted, risen with Christ, sharing in His glory as we await this eternal weight of glory. I want to I end together um, by, by saying, reciting, as we often confess our faith and our sins, I want to confess something else that we believe. Um, so 
uh, Genevieve, you're going to skip this slide, which I think is Revelation 5, and go to Revelation, the other one. You know what I mean? There it is. So in Revelation, as, 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 they, as they see the Lamb, as they see the Lamb, as we, as we studied in Sunday school, those of you who weren't in Sunday school, we saw that John was weeping because nobody was there to open the scrolls. But finally, one of the elders said, don't worry, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. And who was this lion? He was the lamb. And so they sang this song. They sang the song that I invite you to say with me together now. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so, as, as we see that develop, uh, we see these hymns spring up in Revelation. These bursts of praise and glorifying God. And we see in the next, uh, in our last slide here, we see this, this beautiful intro to what is coming later. So allow me to introduce what you're about to say. And as you can see in that last line, they said this with a loud voice, so you should too. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Jesus, your Savior, suffered and was slain for you, Christian. Be comforted. Be confident that your sins are forgiven and be strengthened to endure whatever this life has to offer. Amen. Join me as we pray. Dear God, thank you that we have a mighty conquering Savior who rides in on the white horse and is victorious over Satan and sin. We know that. But thank you also that we have a lamb who was slain. Thank you also that we have a, a, a Savior who has suffered alongside with us. And so, you know how to comfort us. You know how to strengthen us. I pray that that would be the, the cry of our heart, that when we are suffering, we would cling to you, the suffering Lamb who has gone before us. And, in, and united to you, I pray that we would be enabled to endure, to endure with joy, to endure calmly, with great confidence in our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.